Well, good morning, Westridge. It's good to see all of you again. If I haven't met you before, my name's Chris C. And I, uh, a couple things to know about me. Mainly, I'm Darren's friend, and, um, and I pastor a church in Houston. And, uh, and if you do the math, most of the time, if you went, okay, Chris is here this weekend. I'm curious if you'd find a common denominator. So last time I was here um, was during Advent, and there was an event the night before. Anybody remember what it was? Our wine to water event. So if I'm around, it tends to be because Darren threw a party, um, and which can make it rough to preach sometimes the next day. Um, but oftentimes it's because uh, I can't turn down a party. And, uh, and maybe you're the same way. And the passage we're going to look at today uh, offers some interesting insight into the kingdom of heaven and the world that we're made for and what it looks like. I want to read to you a passage in Romans. Romans is obviously, it's a really important book in the Bible. Uh, It tells us that faith uh, is a gift that comes from God, and that we're only saved by faith. And this unique passage in Romans gives us permission to something you probably didn't imagine. So in Romans 12, 15, it tells us this. If some have cause to celebrate, join in the celebration, right? So I want you to hear this clearly, Westridge. If you happen to be at a hotel, there's a wedding, The Bible gives you permission to crash the wedding, right? So, in fact, it didn't just give you permission. It gave you a mandate. It said, right, if you, uh, if there's a celebration, join the celebration, right? And it says, if there's sadness, then also we join in the sadness and in the midst of mourning. So if you end up in that scenario, right, I was, uh, I was in Chicago not long ago at at, uh, A hotel with a great wedding happening. We love the sound of babies. Sometimes they have a good day. Sometimes they have a bad day. Don't you just wish you were a baby? You could cry whenever you felt like it. You could just be like, it's not socially appropriate, but there's a lot of times you just want to cry. Um, I I was at a wedding at a hotel. I wasn't there for the wedding, but I thought, why not get a free gin and tonic while I'm here and uh, sample the prime rib, right? And you can tell them, like, the host of the wedding is like, what are you doing here? Who are you? The Bible told me. Right? I read it in Romans. The pastor said, if there's a celebration, I'm supposed to join in. We've um, been looking at a number of passages that have been taught to you well over recent weeks uh, from the Gospel of Matthew. They're parables. And these parables were kind of meant to literally poke the religious leaders in their eye. Um, Jesus had a way of telling a story that would lead to spiritual truths that you probably wouldn't hear otherwise. And this is the third in a series of those, and it's one of those texts that when you look at it, you go, what is this story about? In some ways, the passage I'm about to read to you, if you're familiar with like anybody old enough to watch the Twilight Zone back in the day, right? This is kind of a Twilight Zone kind of a, you're like, this doesn't, it doesn't make sense how people are acting in this story. Or if you have kids, maybe you remember being a kid and declaring it opposite day, and you're like, now is opposite day. Anybody do that when you were kids? Some of us are like figuring out our kids do it no matter what. So we, if we tell them the opposite of what we want them to do, they might do what we want. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with my logic? So let me get to the Bible because I won't mess that part up. Matthew 22. Jesus is, is telling a story, and this is what he says uh, to these religious leaders. He tells them the kingdom of heaven is like a king whose son was getting married, right? So what we know at the beginning of the story, there's a wedding, but it's not just a wedding, it's a royal wedding. And the reality is people weren't any different then than they were today. If you get invited to the royal wedding, right? If you get invited to Will and Kate's wedding where everybody comes and wears weird hats and 
You know, what, that, like that's the event of the century, right? That's, that's the event everyone wants to go to, right? Even if just Darren's kids are getting married, I want to be there because I know the food and wine are going to be great, right? I want to be a part of the party. I know the music's going to be great. And so if the king invites you to the wedding, it's a big deal. And the king organized a great feast, a huge wedding banquet that only a king can pull off. And he invited everyone he knew. All of his friends were invited. And the day of the wedding arrived, and the king sent his servants into town. This is what they did. They usually had two invitations. And it's become popular again today, right? Have you noticed that? You don't get one invitation anymore now. You get an invitation, but before that, you get a what? A save the date, right? Hey, this is the date. Block it off. Then later on, as it gets closer, you get the actual invitation. This is what the king did. It was customary in that time. And it tells us the day the wedding arrived, the king sent his servants into town to track down his guests. But when the servants approached them with the king's message, they refused to come. Right? This is Twilight Zone kind of stuff. Right? Nobody would, one, turn down the, the party of the century, much less you turn down the party of the century from the king. So this is a different day, right? When uh, our president, years ago I got an invitation from the president to come to the president's prayer bre- breakfast, right? Um, I was out of the country. I wanted to go, but I couldn't. I was out of the country. In our country, in a democracy, if the president invites you, I can decline. Um, and depending on the president, you might want to decline, right? Um, I, I got an invitation several years ago um, because we have uh, some members of the Bush family in our church, and the Bush family invited me to Kenny Bunkport for Fourth of July. Like, not an invitation you want to decline, right? But you can decline a U.S. president. You can say no. But to a king, to a dictator, right, if you're under Saddam Hussein in the height of his power, if he sends you an invite, what's the answer? Yes. There's no, I mean, it's not really an invite. It's a command from a king. So here this king has brought an invitation that's really a command, and the guests have said, no thanks. They refuse to come. So the king sent out another batch of servants. And he, he says, he sent them out and he said, tell those people I've invited to come to the wedding banquet, right? Tell them to come. It's an order from the king. Tell them I've prepared a great feast. Everything is ready. He said, the oxen and the fatted cattle have all been butchered. He says, literally, I've turned this place into like a Brazilian steakhouse. Like, this is what most of us need to know. Like, I don't know if I'm going to the wedding. They're like, did I tell you how much meat I have at the wedding? And you're like, I'm totally coming to the wedding, right? You have that much meat? I would like to be at the wedding. And then he says, the, the wine, it's already decanted. I've got the best wine, and I know what to do. I've let it breathe a little bit. And the table is laid out just so. He's like, I'm going to entice them with what a beautiful party this is going to be. And off the servants went. And they carried the king's message to the errant guests, who still paid not a whit of attention. One guest headed into his field to work. Here they are, party of the century. This guy says, I got work to do. Another sat at his desk to attend to his accounts. The rest of the guests actually turned on the servants. This is where it gets so absurd. Brutalizing them and killing them. Someone's coming to invite you to the party of the century, and not only do you refuse, but you kill the king's messengers. Which again, when someone comes with the seal of the king, it's as though the king has come. So you've now assaulted the king. What we have now is an official rebellion, and the king has to bring justice. So it says, he sent his army to kill the murderers and burn their towns. All just because of a wedding, right? But there was, of course, still a wedding to celebrate. 
Next, next slide. Here we go. And the king said to his servant, his remaining servants, right? The ones that haven't been killed at this point. The wedding banquet is ready, but those I've invited didn't rise to the occasion. So go out into the streets and invite anyone you see. Invite everyone you meet. And the servants did just that. They went into the streets and they invited everyone they met. And this is where we're starting to get a glimpse of the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about, right? He says, who did he invite? The rich and the poor. He invited the good and the bad. The high and the low. The sick and the well. Now this is a big deal in a culture that um, whether you were sick, whether you had any skin disease, anything going on with you, what did they do to you? segregated you, right? You were put away, you were quarantined. And it tells us the sick, the lowly, the poor, right? All are invited in, into this place, the the good and the bad. This is what the kingdom of heaven will be like. And it tells us that everyone who was invited came and the wedding hall practically burst with guests. The king and his son, they get their party. And you would think at this point, the story's over, right? Because it's unique already. And Matthew has a special twist uh, on it as he tells the story. And it tells us that as the party was proceeding, that the king looked around the wedding party with glee, right? He was thrilled, this great party that they'd thrown. But he spotted one man who was not dressed appropriately. In fact, he was dressed rather plainly in clothes not at all fitting for a fine nuptial feast. Now you hear this and you think, well, the poor invited in that maybe had been his best clothes. But what you don't know is that at a king's wedding in this time, Um, that the king would actually offer you as you came in, you would be offered uh, a wedding robe. Can you imagine how expensive these weddings get? You're not only paying for the clothes of the bridesmaids and the bridegrooms, like you're paying for the clothes of everyone who comes. They get a a wedding. It's essentially like their wedding gift. They get a gown, uh, a robe fitting for the wedding. And the king's asking, Sir, how did you get in here without a proper suit of wedding clothes? Right, what? What are you doing? Did you not come in the front door? Did you not get the robe when you came in? And it tells us the man was speechless. He'd been invited in off the street after all and getting no response, right? He didn't have an excuse. He just wasn't participating in the wedding in the way that would be befitting of a wedding. The king told his servants, king, tie him up and throw him out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and grinding of teeth. For many are invited but few are chosen, right? We get this imagery of him being cast out into what? What does this sound like in the Bible? Like hell. That talks about hell as this place of gnashing of teeth. So that's quite a story, isn't it? Let me just give you a few things to think about um, in light of this story that I like about it and I think will be helpful helpful for you. Here's the first. Part of what I love about this story is it messes with the spiritual know-it-alls, right? Uh, I don't know if you realize this, but part of what has often gone wrong with Christianity is that there are a number of people that have taken the Bible and they've tried to become like the Bible answer man or woman. They, wanna, they think the Bible is a map to figure God out. And um, you can spot somebody like this if they're always arguing about their theology. Anybody know somebody like this? If they're in the room, don't point to them. No one likes these people. Um, if you're doing the kind of thing where you're reading the Bible and you're thinking, this is going to be really helpful in that argument I'm going to get in later, um, right? nobody likes you. Um, the reality is we don't read the Bible so that we can be right, right? so we can fight with people. We, re- we read the Bible because it points us ultimately to God. And one of the big issues uh, that Bible know-it-alls get fired up about is this issue of 
Does God choose us, or do we choose God? Anybody familiar with this theological debate? So uh, there's some people on one side that often describe themselves as Calvinists, and they're really fired up about God chooses you. That's, they, that's the thing. God chooses you. And the Bible says it. God chooses you. This other group called Armenians, they're really fired up about we choose God. Now, when you read this story and you read the rest of the Bible, you know what the Bible says? Yes. It says both, right? You hear this story. People got chosen, right? Some of the people that were chosen then chose no, right? They were chosen and invited and they said no. Some of the people you didn't think were chosen, then they got chosen, and they said yes. And then one guy kind of said yes, and then when he came, he didn't really participate fully. This is like some that are going to be in the church and be like, um, well, this is what they tell us in heaven, the most commonly uh, asked questions in heaven. Have you heard this? So uh, the questions you're going to hear most often in heaven are, hey, what are you doing here, right? (laughs) And the second one is going to be, Hey, where's so-and-so? All of a sudden they're realize, like, that dude was always at church. He was super religious. He's not here. And, uh, and this guy is like that guy. He shows up. He, he got invited, and he said yes. But then when he got there, he didn't really put on the gown. He didn't really join the celebration. Right. And this is some of the tension. This is what we see. Um, is that it's often for us, I'm going to skip points here. This is the one about works, right? So this is the gift. That faith is a gift, but you know what it requires? Once you get faith, you're so grateful, you do something. You do something. There are some works that go with it. And in James, this beautiful letter of wisdom in the New Testament from Jesus' brother, it's this beautiful, beautiful book. And this is what he says. He says, do you think that just believing there's one God is going to get you anywhere? If you just declare, I believe in Jesus. James says, do you think that's enough? He says, the demons believe that too, and it terrifies them. The fact is, faith has to show itself through works performed in faith. If you don't recognize that, then you're an empty soul. James reminds us, right? You don't do things to earn God's favor, right? That's the beauty of Christianity, that Jesus loves you in your worst state. But the reality is, once you receive the love of Jesus, you're going to do some things. Because you're going to be so captured by the love of Jesus, you're going to want to care for other people. You're going to want to participate in what your church does, Westridge, with Nika Angels, and, and take a mission trip to Nicaragua and share what you've been given. You're going to want to participate when you hear things in the news like this week that apparently we're not into feeding kids at schools that live below the poverty line anymore. Right? And if the government fails to do it, whose, whose responsibility will it be? It'll be ours. We're the church. And so if a kid's hungry in our community, who's supposed to feed them? You're looking at us, right? So we've got to figure out, what do we do? How do we share? That's part of what we're, we're literally made to do. Um, third thing I love in this story, or sometimes hate, it reminds us that if you're too busy for the party, right, you're too busy. If, Westridge, if you're like me, And this week, you've been consumed with your calendar, your schedule, your activities. In fact, in our day, even when we're not busy, we make ourselves busy, right? Used to, if you were reading, I'd be like, great, you're reading. Because we used to read these things. I don't know if you've seen them before. They used to have stores that sell them called books. And now what do we read? 
We read short articles for people with no attention span about what somebody's wearing or a tweet that somebody said or just these simple things that don't really build any intelligence. We, we're just busy. We're just busying ourselves. And much like the people in the story, they're like, the greatest party that's ever been thrown, you're being invited to it, and you're like, I'm going to work in the fields. I'll go back to my desk. And we realize, right, if we're too busy for the party, right, then we're missing something. And this is what I want you to be aware of this week. There are little beautiful kingdom parties all around you. God's inviting you in an opportunity to meet a neighbor, and just invite them over for dinner and have the time of your life. But you know why you hadn't done it? You're too busy. And you got a neighbor that would love to hear the love of God, would love to feast on great food with you, that you could build a connection with that could really be meaningful, and you haven't invited them over. How long have you lived where you live? And how many times have you had them over? And why haven't you? Just busy. All of these beautiful things around you, Hear this, Westridge, we're just missing it because we're busy with the wrong things. And we see ourselves in this parable, and I don't like it because I don't want to be like that. I don't want to miss out. Two more things I want you to hear. And in our culture today, these are things that nobody really wants to think about. Everybody would love to have a version of Christianity uh, that doesn't acknowledge the reality of sin or the reality of hell. But what we hear in this passage is that hell is a real place. And that God's heart is to invite everyone to the party, but that some will refuse the party. Some will refuse the creator. And I don't believe, again, um, hell is one of those places that I think has often been uh, misportrayed in literature. It's even been misportrayed often by pastors, even my grandfather who's gone on to be with the Lord. If he was here today and he was preaching, he probably would pull out one of his old sermons, turn up the heat to like super hot here and preach on hell, and most of you just super scared would come and be like, I want Jesus again. I need to make sure I got Jesus, because I don't want to go there, right? Or when I was growing up in our church, we would show these like crazy like horror film, films of like after the rapture. Anybody see those? Um, they, were, they were scary, right? So literally, one of them was like, uh, the rapture happened, and then the people that are left behind, uh, they all start getting their heads chopped off. So then somebody at church said like, so if you don't want your head chopped off, you should come follow Jesus, right? So you're like, oh, okay, I will. Um, Hell's not something that's, uh, that's intended to scare you or manipulate you. But it is essentially, the definition of hell, I believe, is uh, living for eternity in the absence of God. And C.S. Lewis tells us that there are many people that choose that path. This is how C.S. Lewis describes it. He says, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels till the end. They've been rebellious, like the people that rebelled against the king. And they've said, I want nothing to do with the king. I don't want to go to his party. I don't want to be a part of the feast. They're like, did you hear about the feast? There's wine and a Brazilian steakhouse. And they're like, I don't want it. I don't want to go. I don't want anything to do with the king. And some have chosen that. And this is what Lewis says that I think is beautiful. He says that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. I believe it to be true. I think there are people that have chosen hell, an eternity of absence with God. But it's not because God said, I'm going to throw them in there and burn them. We don't, have a, we don't serve a God that wants to physically torment people. But this is what you might want to know about hell or consider, that the possibility that you would be separated from the source of all love and grace and goodness in the world could be worse than physical torment. 
that to live in the absence of good or love or kindness, that can be worse than flames, right? And so the metaphors of flames are really intended to say, it's not a place you want to be. So hear this, Westridge. Um, I think the Bible tells us hell's a real place. We don't want to go there. But the good news for us is that what it tells us really clear is that heaven is about the party. And this is what I want you to hear. Don't miss the party. Don't miss the party. What we hear over and over again in the scriptures are descriptions of heaven that tell us it's, it's the great banquet. It's the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's the time and place that we come. Jesus says this to his disciples, one of my favorite quotes in the New Testament, because it sounds like uh, how friends talk to each other. Jesus turns, you remember this, uh, this place in the Bible where Jesus turns to his disciples and says, hey guys, I promise, right, they've just had wine together. He says, I promise I won't drink the new wine until we're together again in the kingdom of heaven. That's the kind of thing friends say to friends, right? So I've been hoping Darren would say to me, one of the great bottles, he's got a magnum of this O'Brien at his house. I'm like, I want him to say, like, Chris, we won't drink that until you come back to Chicago, right? He's never said it, but I want him to say it, right? (laughs) I got a buddy who's got a place in Tahoe, and he's like, he's put aside a special bottle of wine. And the next time I go to Tahoe, we get to drink that wine together. That's what Jesus was saying to the disciples, and he's saying, that's what heaven's going to be like. We're going to have a great feast. We're going to drink great wine. We're going to be together. It is a party. It's going to be a beautiful party. This Westridge is what I want you to know. Heaven is going to be a place where finally these broken bodies that we have, every time I come, I've got different aches and pains as I walk up these steps, right? Anybody else with me? Like, this body is breaking down. This body is no fun at all. I'm ready to be done with it. And what God promises, at some point we'll be done with it. He's going to give us a new body. We'll all be as fast as Usain Bolt. We'll all, you know, look a lot better than we look now. We'll be at peace. We'll be in, relation, in healthy relationships with each other. We won't be holding resentment or anger. There'll be no more reason to cry. Sounds like a pretty great place to be, doesn't it? And so ultimately what the Bible tells us is, All I want for you, those of you who I made and know, I'm the king. I'm the king who just wants you to come to the party. And for some reason, you're ticked at me about me throwing you the best party that could ever be thrown. So this is what I want you to think about. One, have you accepted your invitation to the party? Have you come to the place that you said, you know what, I want to follow Jesus, and I want to be not only on the guest list, I want to accept my place in the guest list, and I want to sit down at the table, and I want to participate in the celebration. I hope you've come to that place. If not, today's a great time to do it. We celebrate the Eucharist together every week at Westridge because in communion, we get to look in this cup and it's exactly what our life is like in so many ways. It's a cup of celebration. It's a cup that we lift like at at a great feast or a great banquet as a toast. Don't you love that part of a banquet uh, where people, sometimes they've had a little too much, but they get up and start just toasting and telling stories and And we get up and toast and we celebrate because we say, can you believe it? I totally blew it this week. I'm a total idiot and I've made the same mistake again. And you know what? I want to tell, I want to toast everyone here because God's chosen to forgive me. Sounds like pretty good news, doesn't it? To anybody else but me, am I the only one that needed it this week? This cup's for you. And so when we come together, it's a toast. It's also a cup of sorrow because we're reminded that Christ suffered so that we wouldn't have to. This is what I want you to hear, Westridge. Don't miss the party. And make sure that the friends and neighbors that, that are around you, family members, that they know they're invited to the party. 
Some, sometimes they've gotten caught up in a misunderstanding of what Christianity is. And they hadn't heard that the invitation is really to a feast. It's to be with a king that loves them, with other people that love them, and be a part of the celebration. So would you pause with me for a moment? I just want to take a moment to pray over you and with you. And we're going to prepare to celebrate communion together today. Lord God, I thank you for the men and women and the children of Westridge. Lord, I thank you that through Scripture, through this third parable that we find here in Matthew to the religious, that you have so much to teach us. Lord, we don't want to be like this, these religious leaders who are resisting you. We, that we have our own plans for what we think we're supposed to do, and if you don't fit into our plans, we're not coming. Lord, we want to say your plan's better than our plan. Your party will be better than our party. And so we want to join with you in that place. And we pray that as we come to the table together today, we're grateful, God, that we come with believers from all over the world, the believers in Haiti and in Africa and in Central America and so many places today are coming and joining in the same ritual. They're sharing in communion because each of us and all of these places need to be reminded that you love us and that you've invited us to the party. And Lord, we don't want to be left out. We don't want to be distracted. Forgive us when we've been too busy. Forgive us when we've wanted our way rather than your way. And instead, Lord, lead us in this community and all across the globe into the great feast, the feast that's a celebration of your love and grace. We pray all of this together, and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.